Go ahead and grab out your Bible and your notes. Come on, somebody. We believe in taking notes here at Victory because we believe we can reference some things on our spiritual journey. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as we get into the message today. If you'd like a fill-in-the-blank version of the notes, if you're like me and you like to just fill in the blanks, we have that in the church app. You can download that. Wherever you get your apps, I don't know, wherever you download those, the so Victory Harvest app, uh, you can have a fill-in-the-blank version of the notes today. And even if you type it in wrong, it will tell you and correct it for you, all right, everybody? So if you want to write down what I want you to write down, pull up the app and fill those in. We're about a month from Easter Sunday, everybody. I know 2021 is flying by. I don't know if it's like that for you, but for me and my family, it feels like 2021 uh, is just soaring by quickly. And so we're about a month away from Easter Uh, And as we approach this time of Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, I just want to take a series these next few weeks, uh, and I want to make sure that we're on firm footing as we move into the rest of the year. If you've noticed, our series kind of build on one another. And so this next one that we're going on is called Foundation, and I just want to talk a little bit about uh, having a firm foundation, making sure that we're strong and secure theologically, that we have this firm foundation, because we come from a lot of different backgrounds Uh, spiritually, we come from a lot of different backgrounds when we get saved. A lot of people come from different uh, ideas or environments, a lot of different things, not just de-churched, but unchurched. And so a lot of people might not have that foundation uh, in the first place. And we never take for granted that someone maybe had the same upbringing or the same mentorship or the same ideas or environment that you have. And so in the church, we never take that for granted. Uh, At my house, my wife and I are raising three little children, all right, everybody, which is just uh, experience in itself. And so we are raising those, but I'm more and more often, I'm finding myself uh, looking at my kids and I'm remembering a lesson or an idea or something that I learned or something that I know how to do or something that I have experienced. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, when are you going to learn that? Like, when is somebody going to come and teach you those things that I already know? And then I realized that person is me. Come on, somebody like it, it should be, it should fall on my shoulders. But I'm, I'm finding myself ready. So we should never assume someone else has had the upbringing or the stories or the things that you've experienced. We never had the mentorship or maybe the opportunity to learn some things. And so I want to have a few weeks where we just go back and we cover some of those things that maybe they have. In other words, there's a journey in the Christian life. And so our verse for the series right now is out of Hebrews. This is the verse we're going to use all throughout this series. But he said, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. In other words, there is a progression. There are some things that are elementary principles. There are some things that are the bedrock. And he says, let's go on to perfection. Another word for that word perfection in the Bible is maturity. That there is a maturity in Christ That people he has called us to grow, not laying again. So he's saying that there is a foundation that we shouldn't lay again of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. And watch this, of the doctrine of baptisms. There are more than one, everybody. Of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. So he says there's some real basic things here. And honestly, the people he's writing to, he's saying we shouldn't have to lay this again. And we'll get to that in just a moment. We'll look at the context from chapter 5. But he's saying that there's this journey in the Christian walk, that you should be going from immaturity to maturity. Because the writer of Hebrews feels like the people he's writing to, you should already grasp this. You should already have these things. And as I read the passage, I thought, you know, there's a lot of people who maybe have never had that foundation in the first place. And I don't know if you know this, but this is my job to make sure as your pastor that you don't get stuck. 
That as your pastor, that you don't just do this thing as kind of a spiritual road, this this to-do list of the week. That you don't get stuck in these things, but that we actually are progressing, that you're actually growing. And that is, we never want to assume that everybody at victory is in the exact same spot or that everybody has caught up to where we are. And then I want to make this statement, we never want to assume that we are further than we are. That we are more mature than we are. That we can leave behind these things. Because if you don't lay the foundation right, everything else, if you're a builder, everything else doesn't matter. You can build as well as you'd like. But if the foundation is not strong, then the house, it doesn't matter how you build the house. It doesn't matter how straight the beams are. If the foundation is wrong, you're going to be trying to correct that for the rest of the time. And so I want to just take a few weeks and make sure that in this Christian walk as a church that we are strong theologically. That we are strong with our base and we are strong with our foundation because each principle builds on the last one. We try to do it in our series here, but also in the Christian walk. It's honestly, it's a little bit like math if you took math in school. How many of you, you trying to forget all the math you ever learned in school? There we go. We got some of us. How many of you are in school right now taking some math? All right. In my house right now, it is addition, subtraction, division, multiplication. All right. So I am brilliant in my house right now. Right. I know how to add numbers. I could divide. Come on, somebody. I have superpowers and I can divide. But as I look back, as I remember math right in high school, I remember, right, you had to take algebra one. You had to take Algebra 1. Like you, it was, you had to take it. No matter what, whoever you were, if you went to high school, you had to take Algebra 1. You asked, well, why in the world do you have to take Algebra 1? It's because you have to take Algebra 2. Come on, somebody. That's why you have to. And so Algebra 2 doesn't make a lot of sense if you haven't learned Algebra 1 yet. You can try, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. And then we progress, right? We progress into shapes and geometry. And we start learning about rhombuses and all those different shapes. And some of you, if your mind is more geared that way, you're like, why couldn't it all be shapes, right? Why couldn't it all just be pictures and shapes and those things? But we make it through geometry, right? And then the rest of you, you go on and you take pre-calculus and calculus in high school. You begin to take those things. And you say, well, why in the world do I need to finish up calculus? So when you get to college, you can take statistics. Come on, if you're not in a STEM major, you take statistics. And that sets you up, right? It makes you, makes you successful when you move on to take quantitative analysis, which is always, always fun, right? Using numbers to solve problems. And all of that sets you up and prepares you well for your life of using a calculator, everybody, all right? (laughs) It prepares you for the final stage in your journey. Here's the problem, all right? The Christian life does not have a calculator. Christian life doesn't have this end-all kind of cheat function we get to at the end of it all. The Christian life says you need to be kind and generous And you need to love your enemies and do good to those who use you and despitefully hate you. And it says that we need to be kind even when you don't feel like it. And the Christian life has these things and there's no calculator to punch in to get the outcome of that. There's no no short. You have to know the principles of God's word that help you pursue a life of faith. You have to have the foundation strong. And so the next couple of weeks, I'm going to help you get that down because there's supposed to be a progression told you it's my job to make sure you don't get stuck. It's my job to make sure that we are growing and we are progressing. Because listen to me, the Christian life can be incredibly discouraging and frustrating when you're not growing. When you're not progressing, when you're stagnant, the Christian life can be incredibly frustrating. And I want you to live the life that God has called you to live. I want us to grow and to become mature in our Christianity. I want us to grow in the foundational elements and also go on to the spiritual elements that God has for us. And so that's what this series is about. If we go back to chapter 5 of Hebrews in that same context of writing to this church, the writer of Hebrews, he writes, there is much more that we would like to say about this. 
But it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and you don't seem to listen. Come on, how many know that sounds like a pretty salty pastor right there, all right? He's pretty upset with his people. He's kind of frustrated with his people, which should make you thankful for how gracious and kind your pastor is, all right, everybody? Should make, I like this pastor, by the way, because he's like, y'all are spiritually dumb and you don't listen. That's what he's saying in that verse. He's like, I've been looking out there and I know you're checking Instagram during my messages and you're not paying attention and I'm sick of it is what he's saying. All right, everybody. And he says, look at this verse 12. He says, you've been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. And I love that thought because just because you followed Christ for a long time does not automatically mean that you are mature in your Christ-like following. Doesn't automatically mean that you are spiritually mature. There are a lot of people been around church for a long time and are spiritually immature. A lot of people that hung around a long time. And the writer is saying here, you've been believers so long that you ought to be teaching others. It takes a work on our part that there's a progression. And I love that thought that the spiritual journey takes us from consuming to contributing. Somewhere along your spiritual journey, as you take this path, you should move from just consumption to contribution. That you should be able to pour out the things that have been poured into you. That the spiritual progression is then the, the blessing and the grace and what you have received, you then share with others. There has to be a turning point right there where you grow mature in your Christianity. You realize it's not all about you, that it's all about pouring into others. That it's about spreading the gospel. You should be investing into people. And I want that for you. I want that for us as a church. Not just because I want the church to grow. The only reason I want the church to grow is more people go to heaven and less people go to hell. All right, everybody, that's my only motivation for having the church grow. My only motivation for having you pour out into others is that you begin to learn the spiritual maturity that you begin to give what you've gotten, that you grow to a place. There's a progression in your spiritual journey. I told you it's incredibly frustrating if you're not progressing, if you're not reaching that place. If your entire Christian journey is just consumption, you will be incredibly frustrated in the midst of it. That if you're not growing and becoming, he says, you ought to be teaching others. The people around here that are using their gifts to teach others, the people out in the world that are beginning to pour into discipleship, and we'll talk a little bit about that in this series, that are pouring into others are the most successful and the most satisfied in their progression. You want to see what the Christian life is about. It's a journey. It's a progression, and we have to live the life that he's given us. So even if you've been a believer for a long time, we have to continue to be faithful in the journey. Even if you've been around a long time around the church, we have to continue to be faithful and to know there is a progression, a progression to maturity, that we can begin to further the cause of Christ. We can begin to further, we can make a difference. And he says about these people, you're not only not mature, but you need somebody Watch this in the next verse. He says, you're not only not mature. Instead, you need somebody to teach you again the basic things about God's word. And then he starts to trash talk. I love this pastor, all right? He starts to write to these people. And he's he's, he's starting it off. And then he's like, and you're just not even, you're dull and you don't even listen. But you're not only mature. You need someone to teach you the basic things. You're like little babies, right? You're just a little baby. Like you want to pacify a little baby. You want some milk, right? He just... He's starting to trash talk like you just you talk, you talk about deep things. You can't even handle deep things. It's a little baby. You're just not going to be. He says, you're like babies who need milk and can't even eat solid food. I, I just picture them on a basketball court. Anybody else just picture them on a basketball court? Come on, somebody. We have a basketball small group that meets back there on Sundays. Come on, just picture them. Just just 
trash talking right here. Just a little baby. Can't even, can't even understand the deep thing. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't even know how to do what is right. He's saying, that's my, he's saying, you need to reach a prayer, a place of maturity. You don't even know how to do what's right. You can't even talk about the deep stuff. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training, and that's another word for that is practice, who through constant practice have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. That's my prayer for all of us, myself included, that we begin to put into practice these things, that we're not little babies, we don't need a pacifier, that we begin to put into practice through training that we can recognize right from wrong. You say, well, what does that look like? It looks like training. It looks like practicing. It looks like one out there. There's no calculator to this. There's no shortcut to this thing. This is a progression in a spiritual journey. It's going to take some work. It's going to take some practice, some training to have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. That we're not out there just getting tossed around by every philosophy and every culture and everything that seems to raise itself up as this emergency or this this idea or this new thing. No, we're not tossed around by all of that. We're not tossed around by culture that begins to say, well, everything is right and God is bigger and love is bigger and love wins. So you can do whatever you want to. We don't get tossed around by those things because we put into practice and training the principles of God's word. It's a progression. And so the next time it says, well, it doesn't matter what you do. And culture tries to say, well, love is bigger and love wins. And so you can sleep with whoever you want to and you can smoke whatever you want to. and You can do whatever you want to because it's all good, right? Because love wins. We can say, no, I understand the authority and the power of God's word that I know that he's the same yesterday, today and forever. And I'm not going to be swayed by any priority or any culture or anything that tries to come against the word of God. It's a progression by faith, by practice and by training We understand what is right and what is wrong. So you want to be solid in your faith. You feel like I'm a little confused when I hear this friend of mine talk about this idea and I see this happening. And we're going to talk about this a little bit during this series. But I just want to hear at the outset, I want you to grasp this idea that it is a progression and it is a practice that when we get confused, we think, well, they said this and I see them living like this. We understand no sin is sin. And I understand what God's word says. And so I can distinguish between right and wrong. I can have that distinguish. It's going from immaturity to maturity. We're going to lay some of those foundations. Today we're going to start in verse 1. It talks about the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. The word repentance there is a big word in the Bible that has, honestly, a lot of negative connotations in our culture today. We think about this word, repent. We think about repent. Come on, somebody. We think turn or burn. We All of us are now referencing those moments in our life that maybe we were at a free speech alley or somewhere where you heard somebody shouting this word over a loudspeaker, repent, repent. And a lot of shame and guilt and negative commentations come along with that. And I want you to know today that is not what repentance is at all. And I'm going to explain that as we go. That's not what it is at all. I'm going to spend a few minutes showing you what repentance actually is from a biblical perspective and how it does require our faith in God in order to complete it. That it does require and how we should be in this fundamental discipline of our Christian life. Not just the beginning of the journey, but all throughout following Christ. This idea of repentance. So if we're going to understand it, we've got to first of all define it. So number one, if you're taking notes, jot it down. Repentance is turning. Come on, I'm going to give you short definitions today, everybody, all right? Repentance is turning. Literal definition of repentance in the Bible is the changing of your mind. 
It's a changing of the way that you think. It's a new perspective. It's a new desire. It's a new, it's in the course of your life. You're turning around. You're changing your mind. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says it this way. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Anybody who comes to Christ, who belongs to him, has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. So when you come to Christ, you have a new perspective. You have new desires. You have a new goal for life. There's something, a new journey that you're on. Anybody who comes to Christ becomes a new creation. In many cases, new relationships. God comes in and he changes everything about your life. All the mistakes of your past have been washed away. You have a new chance now to live the life that he's called you to live. It's an incredible thing, salvation, that you have this new opportunity that things can actually change. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist said it this way. He said, prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. So there's a change that happens. And listen to me, everybody. It is a noticeable change. It's not like, hey, I got, I got saved on the weekend and nothing really changed now. But, hey, guys, that was really great. And so I'm going to mark that down in my diary and then I'm going to move on with my life. No, there is a change that happens when you come to Christ. There is a change that happens when there is salvation. You become a new person. I can say it this way. If nothing changes, then nothing changed. You understand what I'm saying here? If nothing changes in your life, then nothing changed. Salvation means a change. Repentance is a change of mind. There's a new perspective. There's a new desire. There's a demonstration, an actual demonstration of change in your life. But that doesn't happen so much for a lot of church people. A lot of times, and you may have seen this play out in a story, or maybe this has happened to you in your past, but a lot of times you'll be sitting in what we call a turn or burn service. Come on, somebody, where it is heavy-handed and there is hell. You can feel the fire licking at your feet. Like you can feel like your, your feet are getting hot. And so in the midst of that, you decide, well, I don't want to go to hell. Like, I don't, really, I don't really care what God actually has for me. I don't really care to live out the life that he's calling me to live, but I just don't want to burn for all eternity. And you begin to have the, and so a lot of people have that kind of experience where I don't really care what God says and I don't really care what it means to be a Christian. I don't really care about all that. I just don't want to go to hell. And most people come to that place where all they're looking for is fire insurance. Come on, somebody. That's a, and fire insurance, right? We call fire insurance is, is how much of the world can I get and still not burn? Because I, I, I want some Jesus in my life. It's like this writer on your policy. I want a little bit of Jesus, but I want to toe the line with the world as much as I can and still not get burned. Listen to me, everybody. That is not the message of the cross. The message of the cross is submission and sacrifice. And so in this, this moment of how close to the world can I get and still not burn? How close to the world can I stay and toe the line and not go to hell? Listen to me, everybody. That is not the message that we preach here at Victory. I'm not going to preach fire insurance. I'm not trying to add spirituality to your agenda, to all the other things that you're doing. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. We have to turn from sin and turn to God. In fact, turning from sin requires turning to God. You're not just turning from your sin. You're not just trying to get enough not to go to hell. You're actually turning to a new way of life. You are a new creation. That you have new desires, a new perspective. That something actually changes. That's where faith in God comes in, because we all have moments where we wake up and we think this is not healthy. We all have moments in our life where we come to our senses, like the prodigal son. We wake up and we think this is not right. 
And we say, I need to change whatever this is, wherever I found myself stuck. But then, just like all of us, we come to the realization that we cannot fix our problems on our own. That's why we have our problems. You understand that, right? The reason we have problems is we cannot fix them on our own. You need an external, a power that actually helps you, that brings you free. That's why repentance always involves a turning to God. Turning, to, turning from sin involves turning to God. You have to have the external, you have to have his power to free you from it. We cannot free ourselves from our sins. And let me flip that on its head sometimes. I'm so, it's just something that's deep in my own heart. When you look at someone else who may be stuck in their sins, and you say, well, why can't they just fix it? I fixed my, you didn't fix yours, Jesus fixed yours. And they can't fix their own, Jesus has to come into their life as well. We look at people sometimes with judge, and I'm sorry, this is just a soapbox for me. We look at people sometimes with our judgmental eyes and we think, well, why can't they just pull them? No, they need Jesus just as much as we do. They need it just as much as we do to pull them out of where they're stuck. We turn from sin and we turn to God because we have all gotten ourselves in a pattern of behavior. We have all found ourselves stuck and needed to be free because of Jesus's power, not because of anything we do. That we turn from sin and we turn to God. And so if we're really going to change, then faith has to be a part of the equation. There's repentance, he says, and faith in God. This fundamental belief, this foundation of our faith, repentance from sin and turning faith in God. We have to have faith in God because that's where the power comes. That we can't get ourselves out of this place on our own power. About 10 years ago, somebody donated a church shuttle bus uh, to hit church here at Victory. And because I was the one that prayed that thing into existence, no applause necessary, everybody, all right? I'll tell you that story another time. That's for another week. But I prayed that thing into existence, and so I got to be the one that drove the church bus, all right, everybody? Now, me today, with three kids and married and stable, I am still a pretty bad choice to be the church bus driver, all right, everybody? But me 10 years ago was a phenomenally bad choice to be the church bus. They're just an incredibly unwise choice. But I got my CDL and I went, I was going to drive the church bus. And the donating party was kind of walking me through the features of the bus before I drove it back here to Victory for the first time. And they were kind of showing me and the fiberglass kind of outer casing, that big back wherever the 20 people sit. This thing is 29 feet long where the 22 people sit behind you has a fiberglass kind of over mold. You've seen a shuttle bus. And that thing had come apart a couple of times during the life of the shuttle bus. And so they had repaired it. They had taken the pieces and they had kind of, I don't know, they kind of magically glued it back together. And they told me that it'll be fine as long as you don't take it above like 45, 50 miles an hour. Like as long as you just, you don't, no interstate, right? Just, just kind of hang around the streets. You'll be fine. It'll be great. So how many know the college group and I went to Florida the first month that we owned that thing? <laughs> you have not lived till you've gone 90 miles an hour in a shuttle bus. All right, everybody. But that's not the point this morning, all right? I have a point to this. I never tell long stories, all right, everybody? I never, there is a point to this. But one Sunday, I was pulling back into the church parking lot in this monstrosity of a shuttle bus, and I dropped everybody off after service. And so I pulled back onto the property, and Kids Zone was having a parents' meeting upstairs in Kids Zone that Sunday. And so all the kids were out here on the breezeway just kind of playing around. And so I pulled up the shuttle bus, and I threw open that bus door, and they all jumped on, because we've done this before. I take them for a ride around the parking lot. And so we're just, we're just hauling around the parking lot as fast as we can go. And they're screaming. And the biggest child of all is also screaming. 
And we're just having a great time. And so we hit this driveway out here going towards Spanish Church uh, at about 30 miles an hour. We're heading down that driveway just screaming and having a great time. And music is blasting. And so I thought, let's make this really fun. So I hung a right out into the fields. And so now we're bouncing out in the soccer fields and we're screaming anymore. Don't look so shocked, everybody. You did some things. I don't like the faces I'm getting this morning out from out there. And so we're bouncing around out in the fields and all the kids are screaming. About that time, one of the kids remembered the church playground. And they start chanting for me to take them to the playground. And so we come shooting back across this field out here. And I stop on that side of the driveway. And I mentioned that it looks like the ground is a little wetter on that side of the driveway than it is over here. It looks a little more like, and I'm, I'm trying to reason like, okay, this bus weighs a little bit, but I've got kids on here, not adults, and so it doesn't weigh. And I still remember, they start screaming. I remember one little boy right at my ear, right here going, no, it's dry, it's dry. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like sin destroys everything in your life, all right, everybody? I listen to the lie instead of verifying for myself. That's the and so we take off and we're bouncing right over tree roots and over the driveway. Because if you've ever run trailers or trucks, you know once you make a decision, you cannot stop. All right, He who hesitates is lost. When you're going to go across mud, you just have to go. You just keep on. Keep on. So we go bouncing through that and everybody's screaming. It's a great time. And at some point, the front wheels of my shuttle bus came off the ground. And the back wheels, all four of them, sunk up to the axle in the mud. And it got real quiet real quick on my shuttle bus. <laughs> and I looked out my window to see the parents who should have been in kids zone running towards me. Screaming and waving their hands. And now I have sinned and I must repent, right? I have to turn. I have to go back to where I came from. I'd like to rewind the clock about 30 minutes back to where I come from. And so I turned to look at all of my buddies and they're all hiding underneath the seats. Of the shuttle bus. <laughs> they have hidden, which is just like your friends when you get in sin, everybody. You understand this, right? Like, they'll take you to the club, but they won't drive you home. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Come on, that'll, that'll preach right there. <laughs> I don't even know where I was going with that. <laughs> but just like so we have to repent, we go back to where we're talking. Now, everything turned out all right, everybody. I am still alive, all right? They did not string me up from the nearest tree. I am still here to talk to you, all right, everybody. All the kids were there and accounted for. And how many know it's good to have a dad who's got a 105-horsepower Kubota tractor and chains who can come pull you and your shuttle bus out of the mud? <laughs> Put that on your bumper sticker, everybody. The point is sin is the same way. Sin is the same way. We make bad decision after we follow somebody else. We make bad decision after bad decision. We get ourselves stuck. We find ourselves in a situation where we say, we look out the window and we say, this is a bad situation. I am in a bad situation. I have done wrong. I need to get out of this. But listen to me, everybody. You cannot pull yourself out by yourself. Under your own power, you cannot get yourself unstuck. You cannot fix yourself. You cannot break the addiction. You cannot break the hold that sin has on your life by yourself. You need God's power in your life. There has to come a place where you recognize, yeah, I'm in a bad spot. But then you also recognize repentance and faith in God. You recognize that where this fix is going to come from, that I need God's power. I need him to bring me out of whatever it is I found myself stuck in. And how many know your father in heaven has a tractor big enough to pull you out of the mess that you're in? 
He's got one big enough to pull you. His chains are strong enough to pull you out of whatever mess you found yourself stuck in. So repentance is turning, turning from sin, turning to God. Now, what makes us make that turn? Number two, if you're taking notes, jot it down. Repentance requires truth. It requires turning. It is turning from sin to God, but it requires truth. We have to have a moment that we wake up to what we are doing. Nobody does sin believing that they are doing something stupid. Nobody does sin believing that they are doing something that's going to hurt themselves. Nobody does it. No, we, people do sin because they believe they found a solution. People sin in their life. They go after these things because they believe they found a solution. I'm going to pacify my pain in that drug. It's going to pique my interest. It's going to satisfy me. It's going to make me happy. It's going to do whatever it is that I'm looking for. They believe they found the solution, and so they fall into it. And we believe that because we're blind. It's deception, the Bible calls it. First Corinthians says it this way. It says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And so there's a blinding that comes, so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The next time you're trying to judge somebody who's not a believer, but they've fallen into sin, remember this, it's a deception. There is a blinding that comes. Nobody sins because they know, well, this is going to send me to hell. People sin because they think they found a solution, even though it's a false one. And so they find themselves stuck. We're blind in our sin. So repentance requires truth, because if you don't know you're a sinner, you won't know you need a savior. If you don't know that you're a sinner, you won't know that you need a savior to save you. And I think so many times this idea or sorry, this blindness tends to permeate even into the church. That we read verses like all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we think, well, that's everybody but me. I understand that I have a sinful nature, but that was Adam in the garden and Eve. And they gave me that sinful nature. So I need to repent for that. But I am not truly sinful. And we have this pride that creeps in that says, well, I don't need the gospel. And I don't need the salvation because I can do enough good things on my own. No, all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we begin to recognize this idea that we are blind in our sin, that it blinds the minds of those who can't see the glory of Christ. There has to come a place where truth breaks into their lives, that truth begins to reveal the life that we're living, reveal the sin that is in our own lives. There's a truth. And honestly, a lot of times that moment when we wake up to our sin, we wake up to our sin and we realize that we need Christ to save us. That moment, honestly, a lot of times is coupled with a whole bunch of pain. There's a whole lot of pain, a whole lot of, honestly, a lot of drawback that comes with that. Second Corinthians says it this way, the kind of sorrow that God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. You're going to be sorry. There's going to be a sorrow that comes when you wake up and say, this is wrong. And you see the destruction that it's doing not only to your own life, but to those of your kids and those around you. That you're basically sowing destruction into your life. And you wake up to that moment, there is sorrow that goes along with that. There is a moment that you wake up and you realize, I am a sinner and there's sorry, godly sorrow. Godly sorrow says, I hate that this happened. I hate what I'm doing to those around me. I hate that I need to change. Godly sorrow says, I need God to come in and rescue me. I, and I need to change this thing. And the Bible says, there's no regret for that kind of sorrow. That's a godly kind of sorrow in your life where you feel like, okay, I, I hate that this is happening. I hate that I'm making that decision. I don't like the person that I'm becoming. I don't like the decisions I'm making that's killing everything around me. There is a godly sorrow that comes at that moment where we recognize that we are sinners. 
And you probably hate, but it says there's no regret about that because honestly, at the end of that sorrow, you will begin to appreciate and love that sorrow. Let me explain what that means. You'll begin to find the joy in that sorrow, that godly kind of sorrow. You'll probably hate the path of mistakes that you made, but when you wake up to the reality and make the change, you're going to say, thank God. Praise God that I came to this moment. Praise God. I hate that that thing happened. I hate for the destruction that it caused. I hate the path that I had to walk. But praise God that it brought me here because it brings and results in salvation. You look back on that and you ask anybody who's been in the faith. You look back on that moment. You hate the path that you walked before it. But praise God that it brought you to that moment. That that godly sorrow brought about salvation. That it led you to Christ. That you can say, thank God. Thank God for that business that fell apart. Thank God for that relationship that fell apart. Thank God for those things. that I hate that it happened. I hate that it hurt people. I hate what it sowed in my own life. But man, it led me to salvation. That I actually recognized that I was a sinner. It's a godly sorrow. The other response is worldly sorrow. Watch this in the next. But worldly sorrow, this is what a lot of people have that's coupled by guilt and condemnation and shame. It's not a godly sorrow. It's not recognizing what we, who we are and what we need. This is a worldly sorrow that's guilt and condemnation and shame. It lacks repentance. There's another kind of sorrow, and oftentimes this gets touted as the way to bring people to Christ. No, godly sorrow is the way we bring people to Christ. This worldly sorrow lacks repentance. This is the sorrow that says, well, I hate what I've done, and I hate who I've become. And I hate what it's doing to the people around me. I don't like the situation that I'm in, but it's not bad enough for me to change. No repentance. It's not, I'm not going to actually make a change. I'm not going to move in the right direction. I'm just going to hate what I've done a whole bunch. I'm just going to hate the decisions that I've made, and I'm just going to begin to hate myself. And all this is just a spiral out of control, but there's no repentance that goes along with it. This is worldly sorrow. This does not lead to salvation. This leads to death. This is worldly sorrow. And so oftentimes, and even in my own life, we, we tend to gravitate towards this when we judge other people. We tend to think this is the weapon we have to reach people for the gospel. It's not. This is worldly sorrow that says, well, I hate these things that I'm doing. And I, you really made me feel bad about that. I'm sorry about all those things, but I'm not going to change the things that I'm doing. There's no repentance. I'm not going to change the places that I'm going. I'm not going to change the relationships because I like them too much. And I'm not going to change the things I'm doing because it makes me feel too good. And I'm not going to change the places that I'm going. And I'm not going to do that. I don't care what God says and I don't care what you say and I don't care what any of these things. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to end that relationship because I I like it. And I'm not going to end those drugs because they pacify something. And I'm not going to end. I don't want to make a change. And if continued long enough, it brings death, brings spiritual death. Begins to kill everything in your life. It'll kill your marriage. It'll kill your relationship with your kids. It'll kill your purpose and the plan God has for your life. You let those things. And I want you to ask yourself a question. As we take stock today, begin to ask yourself, what in my life is dying because of unrepentant sin? This is unrepentant sin. This is sin that you're saying, I know it's wrong and I know I feel, but there is no repentance attached to it. What is dying because of that? Because God can deal with sin all by itself. Sin all by itself is simple to deal with. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and gracious to forgive us of our sins. We'll get to that in just a moment. And he'll cast it as far as the east is from the west. If we confess it, he is gracious and just and faithful to forgive us of our sins. It's that simple. It's that simple. When you make mistakes, which you're going to do for the rest of your life, God is incredibly gracious to forgive us. 
He's incredibly gracious, but it's the areas of our lives that God brings truth to. That God comes to us and points to something. That God sends someone to point to something in our life. It's those areas of our life. God brings a truth and we go, man, I feel guilty and I feel shameful and I feel sorrow for that. For having done that and I hate that I did it, but I'm going to keep going back to it. Keep going back to the addiction for relief. I'm going to keep going back to the relationship because I like it. I'm going to keep going back to the thing. I don't care what damage it creates. I don't care what it does to other people. I don't care what it does to me. I'm sorry that I did it, but I'm going to keep on. Unrepentant sin brings death. I want you to know it's not just that you, you don't do the things that you thought. There's things God has for you to do in your life. Unrepentant sin can kill your purpose. That God has incredible things for you to accomplish, but you let those things linger. It will bring spiritual death. You say, why am I not progressing in the faith? Why am I not continuing those things that God promised to me so long ago? We need to begin to take honest stock of our lives. Begin to say, what in my life, unrepentant sin is causing death? In fact, Ephesians says it this way, that there is godly sorrow. Yes, there is a sorrow that's unrepentant. But I want you to know there is a godly sorrow that you can change the way that you are. You can call out to him. Watch this in Ephesians. It said he is so rich in kindness and grace. So rich. I said that there was a wrong way of reaching people with worldly sorrow. That's not the way that we cause people to change. Watch this though. This is the way the gospel goes forward. He says he's so rich in kindness and grace that God purchased our freedom. We shouldn't gloss over verses like this, church. He's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Look, God's not looking to condemn you. God's not looking to judge you. God's not looking to cast you out. He wants to rescue you. He's done everything that he can to rescue you. It says that he didn't even hold back his son, that he purchased our freedom. That he's trying to rescue. Worldly sorrow says there is no change. There cannot be a change for me. But godly sorrow says there is something more. That God has purchased our freedom through the blood of his son. That he's given up our freedom. God's not in the business of guilt and condemnation and shame. He's not trying to send you to hell. He's trying to rescue you. He's trying to rescue you. The message of the cross is not that everybody would go to hell. The message of the cross is that he can rescue you. That Jesus came to purchase our freedom. Jesus didn't come to gloat that you can't. He came to show you that he can. That he can rescue us. That he can free us. That he gave up everything. That he purchased our freedom. That God wants to forgive you. That he wants you to have the life that he wants you to live. Repentance. Not fire insurance. You need to know that Jesus didn't come to make you guilty. He came to set you free. He came to set you free. God purchased our freedom. He bought our freedom for us. And so godly sorrow says, I hate what I've become, but I know what Christ can make me into. I know the purpose he has for me. It's godly sorrow, repentance. It's not fire insurance. It's repentance. It's a turning. It's surrender. And the thing that helps us to take that step, number three, as we close, repentance is triggered by grace. And this may be different than something that maybe you have learned in your past or maybe you've heard somewhere else. Repentance is triggered by grace. To be honest with you, it's not what the world is expecting the church to preach. They're expecting us to just, you know, expect them to be triggered by condemnation or by shame. 
They expect the church to leave these doors and to come out with a message of judgment and condemnation. But repentance is triggered by grace. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 2, watch this, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Don't you see how incredibly patient God is with you? It is amazing that any of us are here today. That any of us are in the church today. Any of us are living lives for Christ today. It is incredible. The amount of stupid things that I did in high school. And I don't tell you the half of the things. I tell you the funny half. I don't tell you the half of the things that I did. Just nonsensical, incredibly stupid things. The things that we've done. It's incredible that God is patient with any of us. That he chooses to use any of us. That he has a purpose for any of us. If we're honest with ourselves today, we would say it is amazing the patience of our God. It's amazing how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient our God is. God looks at me and he says, you're an idiot, but I can use you. He looks at us and he says, I can still use you. Like all of us have to take a step back and realize how incredible it is that we were in exile and sent off far away long ago. That God continues to accept us. He continues to forgive us, continues to use us in his purpose. If we're honest with ourselves, we recognize how incredibly patient our God is. Can't you see that his kindness? And yet he still extends opportunities to us. In all that we get ourselves stuck in, he still pulls us out. And he asked this question, and honestly, this one hit me. I don't know how it affects you, but he asked this question. Does this mean nothing to you? Look how incredibly patient and tolerant. Look how kind our God is. Does it mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? It's repentance, another verse says, another translation says, that leads you to salvation. Don't you see that his kindness is supposed to lead you to salvation? That he's patient and kind with you. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads us. So Christianity has a transmission problem. The good news of the gospel is incredibly great news. I'm convinced everybody would want to hear it. But the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ has been hijacked by religion and by culture and by those of the world that try to make it into a message of shame and condemnation. It says, no, the goodness of God leads men to repentance. It leads mankind to forgiveness. It's the goodness of God. That there is godly sorrow, but it's coupled with repentance that leads you to salvation. That it says it's the goodness of God that draws us. But I tell you, the message of the cross has been hijacked by condemnation, it's a trick of the devil to make you feel like you'll never measure up. And so just stay in your worldly sorrow. You'll never be good enough. So why even approach those church doors? There's a condemnation that's hijacked the transmission of the message that says you should never even try because you can't. And it leaves out the message that Jesus doesn't expect you to do it. He can save you. He can rescue you. And honestly, this, this misgarble, this transmission, it drives people away from God by the millions. That's not what Jesus came to communicate. The message is you can't make yourself right with God. Only Jesus can. 
But that is the gospel message. We can't just leave them in condemnation and shame. We can't just have worldly sorrow. We preach the salvation. It's the goodness of God. It's the grace of God that leads people to repentance. It's the fact that his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. It's incredible for all of us. That it's incredible that he chooses to use any of us. That he's never stopped pursuing it through every one of us, no matter who you are or what you've done. That repentance, that salvation is available to you. It's available to you. To every one of us. Every one of us finds ourselves in that moment. Every one of us finds ourselves needing repentance, needing the salvation of God, needing the power of Christ to help us to change. It's repentance, but it's faith in God. That we turn to him. And that after we have been saved, that we don't close the door on others. Church, I told you this before. We did a whole series on this, but it's on my heart that after we have received, that we don't shut the door in others' faces. That somehow it's different the way they need to come to Christ. That we came arms open and we said, I know I can't do it on my own, but I need Jesus to do it for me. In the same way we extend grace and faith and patience to those who need Jesus. So here at Victory, we make it hard to go to hell by making it easy to go to church. We make it difficult to go to hell. We make it difficult to not know the gospel by making it easy to hear the grace of God. Let that be our calling as Christians that we never get the message mixed up. We never make a miscommunication because people's lives hang in the balance. That we would be able to extend the grace of our God to others. Let that be us as a church. They would have to go to hell. They would have to step over us on their way. That we make it easy to go to church, easy to hear the gospel, easy to understand what Jesus is offering them and difficult to choose anything else. That it's the goodness of God that leads people to salvation. You should come here and feel inspired to live the life that God has called you. You should feel inspired to bring others to the cross. Let it be us as a church that we never shut the door in others' faces. But I want to leave you with this thought in verse 4. And that is that his kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. So does that not mean anything to you? That his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Never mistake his patience for his acceptance. When we read that verse, never accept or expect and accept his patience. And never interpret his patience as acceptance. Never expect it to be, never mistake it. You're dabbling with an area of sin in your life, something unrepentant. Don't ever think, well, I haven't experienced extreme judgment yet, and so God must not care. Never get to that place as a Christian. That you say, well, I haven't experienced his judgment in that area of my life that I'm poking into, or I'm towing the line over here, and he hasn't judged me for it, so God must not care. No, it says that his patience is meant to lead you to repentance. That he's meant to lead you to repentance in your life. Something unrepentant. Do I haven't experienced that judgment? No, his kindness and his patience and his tolerance, they're extended to you to lead you to salvation. Let me be clear here at Victory. We are a church that believes in grace to its fullest extent, but we are not a church that preaches fire insurance. We preach grace in all its form. We preach grace to the fullest extent of the scriptures. But we will never preach fire insurance 
Where you say, how can I toe the line and still have enough Jesus not to go to hell? That's not what the cross is about. The message of the cross is relentless submission. It's sacrifice. It's saying, not my will. I want this new life that you have come to give me. The message of the cross, the blood that Jesus shed is to lead us to salvation. It's to wash us clean, to give us a new perspective, a new desire. Let that be clear that we do not expect and we do not treat God's kindness with contempt. Listen to me, church. Jesus is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. He will not take second place in your life. The message of the cross is not that this tolerance and this patience that we have all experienced of God is not acceptance. It's supposed to lead us to repentance. It's supposed to lead us to a change. If you want him to radically transform you, to change you into a new person, you must repent. You can't live the way that you've been living. You can't go back to the ways that you had before and expect the change to happen. You cannot have that old way and still accept the message of the cross. It is repentance. It leads you to salvation. Gospel is the submission of our lives, the sacrifice to him. It's saying, I know that the direction of my life is wrong. I know that I found myself stuck in a place I don't want to be. I know that where I'm headed is destruction and death. I want to make a change. It's repentance. And it's coupled with faith that says, I know I can't do it on my own. I need Jesus to change me. He says, let us not, this this foundation of repentance and faith in God, this turning from sin, turning to God, that God has called us to live the life that he's called us to live. And the incredible thing of the gospel, when you pray that prayer, when you come to that realization, when you repent, God steps in instantly and he changes you. Instantly and he makes you brand new. In this moment and he makes you brand new. Some of you are in that place, you're towing the line, but you're saying, I want that change. In that moment of repentance, In that moment of submission, he makes you brand new. He gives you a new purpose and he sets you on a new path and you can begin to live the life that he's called you to live. It's never too late. It's never too late to have the purpose that he's called you to live. It's never too late. That God wants you, that he wants to save you, that you can repent, that you can turn, put your faith in God, that Jesus came to set you free. Every head bowed, every eye closed today. Just one moment before we go, I just want to talk to you. And maybe you're far from God today. Maybe you came in here today or you're watching online and you're not really sure why you came or why you stumbled over the video or why you even clicked and listened. I want you to know that God loves you. And I don't care what you've been told in your past. I don't care what people may have shouted at you from a pedestal. I don't care how people may have judged you or condemned you. I want you to know that God still loves you and he wants you. That there can be freedom from your sin. That it's not worldly sorrow that says, I'm sorry I did it, but I'm going back to it. That it can be a godly sorrow that comes with freedom attached to it. That you can be free of the addiction. That you can be free of that toxic relationship. That you can break free of these chains, these things trying to hold you back. That God still has a purpose for you. If you say, that's me, I need that power in my life. I need God's change in my mind. I want to pray with you. For others of you, you may have included God in your life. You may have just added him in as something else on your spiritual agenda. 
But you know that he's not first. You may have said, well, I've got fire insurance, but I'm still going to toe the line. I'm still going to ride on the top of the fence. I'm still going to try to do those things that I like to do. I want you to know today that Jesus wants to be Lord of all. He will not take second place. So if that's you today, and you haven't actually surrendered, you haven't actually submitted your life, you haven't given all to him, there was no change, I want to pray with you. And all of us, we're going to pray a prayer of submission, a prayer of sacrifice. That's what the message of the cross is. I'm not asking you to join a church. I'm not asking you to join a religion. I'm saying you need to have a relationship with Jesus to accept what he did for you on the cross. That's what you need. And so we're going to pray a prayer right now. For those of you, you say, I want to come to Christ. And those of you who are saying, I haven't made him first, we're going to pray this prayer right now. I'm not going to make you stand or come to the front. I want to pray a prayer of submission. I want to connect you with Jesus. And I can give you the words to this prayer, but you have to pray them and you have to mean them in your own heart. So right now, let's pray. Church, pray this along with them. Nobody prays alone. But say these words. Say, dear Jesus, I surrender. Forgive me for all of my sins, for all my mistakes. I repent. I turn. I believe that you died on the cross. I believe that you rose again and I make you the Lord of my life in Jesus' name. Lord, I'm so thankful for our church today. God, I'm so thankful for the grace and the mercy that you extend to us every single day. Lord, we never take it for granted. We never let it mean nothing to us. God, we come after you with everything we have. Lord, once again, we stand in awe that you choose to use us. God, we stand in awe that you choose to forgive us. Lord, I ask this week in our hearts that your voice take first place. Let your presence take first place in our homes. Father, in our presence, in our environments, in the places we go, let your presence go with us, God. Let us grow to be spiritually mature. Let us learn to discern right from wrong, God. Let us have that maturity in Christ that we begin to follow you with everything we have. Submission and sacrifice. Submission and sacrifice. And Lord, we say thank you again that you choose to use us, that you love us. Father, that you are always with us. And we'll give you all the glory and all the praise. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's church said amen and amen. Come on, can we put our hands together for what God has done today? Give me briefly 30 seconds of your time before we go. Just 30 seconds of your time. If you prayed that prayer today, you made that prayer of submission, of sacrifice, man, we are excited and celebrating with you. All of heaven celebrates when you make that decision. All of heaven celebrates with you. I'd love to talk over with you your next steps in your journey with Christ. Or if you have any questions about what it means to be a Christian, I'd love to talk that. I'll be at the front of the stage right after this service. Love to talk that over with you. If you feel more comfortable, you're watching online, you can text the word SAVED to 665-99.
text the word saved and shot a quick video for you. I promise we don't save your number. We just send you a quick video to show you the next steps in your journey. For the rest of you, you're dismissed. Be blessed this week. We'll see you next Sunday.